Hello, fellow boneheads. Welcome to One Flesh, One End, a locked tomb reread podcast. We'll be coming through Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth by Tamsin Muir for all the context and clues we missed on our first read. I'm Bailey. And I'm Cabria, and we're very excited to take a look through all the theories that we can't stop obsessing over while we wait for the very mysterious Mona the Ninth. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this journey through 10,000 years of history. We can't wait to spend more time with the characters putting the romance in necromancy. So first of all, we just want to start with a big thank you to everyone who's been reaching out, following us, chatting with us on social media, etc. We have been having such a fun time talking about these books with you, and we are just having so much fun with this podcast already. So please don't be shy if you have any thoughts on anything that we are saying in this or other episodes or any theories you want to share about these books or what's coming next in Nona the Ninth, we truly do love hearing from you and love nothing more than talking about these books 24-7. So please reach out. Um, we are at One Flesh One Pod on Twitter, Tumblr, and TikTok. And you can also email us at onefleshonepod at gmail.com. So yeah, we, we really love hearing from you. Second of all, uh, we have a really fun episode lined up for you today. So we are going to be taking a look at chapters seven and eight in which Gideon and Harrow arrive at the first house. We finally start to meet um, some of the necromancers and calves from the other houses, some truly wonderfully dramatic introductions to them. Then we're going to play a game where we look at the naming conventions of the different houses in these books. And then we're going to follow it up with a discussion on memes and internet culture references and how they set a really unique tone for the Lock Tomb series. And of course, we'll have a bone of the week for you at the very end. So let's get started. So chapter seven starts with Gideon and Harrow en route to the house of the first. Uh, we get a little bit of world building um, beyond ninth house, which is pretty exciting. There's a sentence where they say the Lord of the house of the first was the Lord undying and he had not come back in over 9,000 years. So again, this gives us another hint of the, the time and the scope of the history of uh, the world that they are living in this 10,000 years of history and these different houses that make it up, which we will be meeting uh, very soon. <laughs> and we're also introduced a little bit more to the idea of the Lord undying and a uh, king and emperor figure who hasn't returned to the house of the first in a really long time. Uh, I wonder who can say why <laughs> who that could be and what's going on there. And if we'll ever way, find out more. The way you started that kind of made it sound like Gideon and Hera were themselves saying that. And it, obviously <laughs> they're not, but it does kind of lead into the discussion topic for this episode. I guess the way that the omniscient narrator has such a different and more serious voice than Gideon often does. But anyway, Absolutely. the rest of the, the chapter opening quote is really good too. Um, it goes, the tumbled down cities and temples of the house, both long dead and unkillable, a sleeping throne. Far away, its king and emperor sat on his seat of office and waited, a sentinel protecting his home, but never able to return to it. I just love that. Well, first of all, I really love the sort of Baroque stylings of the narrator, <laughs> but also it's like, 
good, sort of mysterious and very beautiful foreshadowing for what we learn in Harrow. Yeah, absolutely. And we also get another clue here with the other houses before we actually meet anyone from them, where <laughs> um, it says there were other houses that made their homelands on planets closer to the burning star of Dominicus, the seventh and the sixth, for instance. But to Gideon, they could not imagine be anything else than 100% on fire. And this is because <laughs> as they're in their shuttle heading there, like Gideon is pressed up against the window and like just blinding her eyes with all of this yeah. light that she's not at all. To the point to of tears. <laughs> yeah. And Harrow is like, put on a veil, you idiot. Like, <laughs> you're going to be useless to me. But yeah, I think that that's a neat little, one of the first clues that Mm -hmm. what I, what I didn't pick up on my first read through right away was that, you know, these, these nine houses could be potentially mapped to the planets of our solar system and Dominicus being our sun and our star. And so definitely Mm -hmm. on a reread, that was something that jumped out at me there. Oh yeah. Now I can see where that theory comes from. You have these little nuggets (laughs) like that. Well, and I think I kind of had the same experience because my brain started to sort of cotton on to the idea that maybe the first house was Earth with the sentence that uh, the planet was absolutely lousy with water, smothering it all (laughs) in the bluest of blue conflagrations. And I was kind of like, huh? Like, is this our solar system? No, it's probably like a made up one. But could it be? (laughs) Classic Earth, absolutely lousy with water. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's also such a good motif of light throughout this whole chapter, like both emphasizing that like the both the the plot and the like location for the characters has changed in a really dramatic way from where we started. Yeah, which is also fun because definitely when I started reading this book, I was like, okay, they're in a dark hole in the ground somewhere. <laughs> like this whole book is going to be <laughs> in the bottom of this shaft. Somewhere. In the goth hole. <laughs> Skeletons clanking around. And then like, you're just a few chapters in and they're already showing up somewhere that's new and bright and blue. And that's kind of fun <laughs> and exciting. I also noted here that the trip only takes them an hour, which uh, sounds pretty sweet. <laughs> there are so many places that I would drive an hour to get to for so much less like adventure than this. Like they're literally like leaving the only home they've ever known, crossing a galaxy. Yeah. Like I would drive an hour to go to a water park. I would drive an hour to go to like a slightly different restaurant or mall. Like meanwhile, they're just crossing the galaxy. It's fabulous. Pluto to earth. Boom. One hour. Um, and it also, kind of sets up a bit of the mystery of the resurrection and possibly electo depending on the theory you espouse with Harrow um the passage goes Harrow shook her head back into her hood and pinched the bridge of her nose and said in tones between pleasure and pain this planet's unbelievable it's gorgeous it's a grave said Harrow Hark um which is very ominous (laughs) I mean does she just mean all the earth people that died does she mean something else I don't know we'll find out in electo I just think that's a great energy to have just commenting on different places you visit. It's grave. Someone died here. <laughs> Thank you, Harrow, for bringing us that vibe. Oh, and then I also absolutely iconic moment in chapter seven, we get the very first appearance of Gideon's sunglasses, Woo-hoo! which I love and I could talk about for so long, but I think just, I mean, it's, it's such a funny kind of not anachronistic, but like, it just feels very out of place with everything else that's going on in this world right now that she has these like, you know, sunglasses that she's brought (laughs) with her. Uh, It's a great aesthetic. It looks great on the cover of the book. And then of course, um, when you get through the next book in the end of Harrow the Ninth, you find out that there's like important plot ramifications (laughs) of the fact that Gideon's been wearing these ridiculous sunglasses. And I think it's just the coolest thing in the world to take such a silly (laughs) thing and make it like actually important. Yes. In the notes I wrote, check off sunglasses. Yes. (laughs) um, It's, it's anarchistic in the same way that kind of everything about Gideon as a character and, you know, 
point of view is yeah. anachronistic, right? Which I guess, again, we'll get to in the discussion section. But yeah, I also found like... it kind of hilariously relatable that, like, she's overwhelmed by the light and puts on her sunglasses because I'm someone who, like, I, I don't think I've gone outside without wearing sunglasses, like, any season, any time of year since I was maybe five or six. <laughs> <laughs> These are the only way that this chapter could be more Bailey for is of getting them to get her chapstick and start supplying oh, it. <laughs> she's oh, my sex. God. <laughs> Her Laneige uh, lip balm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Bailey core. Oh my God. I was also going to say some. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like I have um, the world's like weakest, least light resistant eye. <laughs> Bailey would not be having a time on the shuttle. Bailey would be. Bailey, you need what Harrow's got on this shovel, just the black fabric mm-hmm. that she's wrapping mm-hmm. around her entire face. That should I be your wear new look for times. the summer. <laughs> Hot girl summer. We are <laughs> draping our faces in black veil. Oh my God. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> Gideon puts on the sunglasses and they head out of the shuttle and they get their first look at Canaan House, um, which is this Gormagast ass ruined fortress. Um, and if you don't know what Gormagast is, it's a you know classic sci fi fantasy book by Mervyn Peake, uh, which came out, I think, in the 60s. Um, I started reading it and failed maybe 10 years ago. But anyway, Champson's acknowledged that it's a big inspiration. It's, it's, you know, uh, sort of the original beautiful but decaying family fortress, <laughs> I guess. And I love how, but she leans into this really, this vibe of decaying and death and yes. all of that too, in this, you know, very necromantic book that uh, it describes this, you know, beautiful palace that in its time was this monument to wealth and beauty. It says uh, a palace, a fortress of white and shining stone. It spread out on the surface of the water, like an Island. It rose up in gracious towers that hurt the eye with their slenderness and precision. And then, yeah, it says it would have back in its day, at least it would have been a monument to wealth and beauty in the present. It was a castle that had been killed. Oh, describes so how good. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> It's all falling apart. It's covered in vines. It's covered in Slimy. algae and salt. Like just <laughs> absolutely disgusting everywhere you look. And then it says the whole place had the look of a picked up body, but hot damn, what a beautiful corpse. And like that <laughs> oh, to me God. is also just such a classic mood of this entire series. What a beautiful oh, corpse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag what a beautiful corpse. Yeah. That's what we're here for. All the protagonists. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so Hera gets off the ship. She's got this great description as a bony figure wreathed in layers and layers of night-colored cloth with a lace overcloak trailing behind her, adorned with bones, painted like a dead woman, eyes blindfolded with black net. And then she drops to the ground and starts praying with her knuckle bones. <laughs> I love and, that we both pulled this quote when we were making our oh notes because it's such a great visual. Especially it's so when good. You, like, find out more about how the ninth house is perceived by the other houses later <laughs> and like by teacher and that that Harrow's first thing is to just like descend off this <laughs> shuttle wrapped in bones and immediately start praying and they're like okay <laughs> and then we meet teacher uh he comes over to greet them Gideon later on makes a snide comment about how the ninth house always attracts so much geriatric attention <laughs> Um, but the description of teacher is interesting. So Tamsin says, around his waist was a gorgeous belt. It was made of some shimmering gold stuff and embroidered with a multitude of jewel colors and intricate patterns and shapes, blah, blah, blah. They looked as though they had been made a thousand years ago and kept in loving perfection. Everything about him was ageless and pristine. And I love it because it's got this interesting parallel positioning between describing his clothes as, you know, being made a thousand years ago and kept in loving perfection. And then immediately the next sentence, which is to describing all of him. And of course, later we learn that like teacher himself, the whole person was made and preserved a thousand years ago, well, 10,000 years ago in the same way as his clothes were. 
Yeah, there's a lot of little, I think there's some more that we're going to get to too, but there's a lot of little like yeah. interesting insights that Gideon has about some of these people that she meets right at the very first time that like once you get through the book and, and learn more about them, it's kind of funny <laughs> to see some of the things that she clocked really early on. Um, yeah. Well, she clocks, but she doesn't necessarily follow them through to their full conclusion. It's interesting. No, there's, there's no processing or putting together like <laughs> the pieces necessarily, but it's just kind of like fun little clues for the reader. Yes. Um, and one of the ways that it does really reward rereading in a way that I'm already enjoying. But yeah, then they explain to teacher, because uh, he's obviously like, this isn't Ortis, <laughs> who's this? And they just say that Ortis has abdicated. Gideon is now the Cavalier primary. Um, he refers to her as Gideon the Ninth. And uh, there's a fun little <laughs> line where it says Gideon the Ninth would have paid cash to be called absolutely anything else, which again, kind of highlights the distinction between how much Harold really cares about representing the Ninth House while they're there and how much Gideon wants to be like, just not associated with it whatsoever. Like she doesn't want that to be part of her identity. Exactly. Um, I also but, thought it was kind of funny that Harrow just said it so easily, like, oh, yeah, Ortis abdicated, Gideon's the new calf. Like, why are they, like, <laughs> like it seems well, like it's not a big deal. Especially when there was all that stuff with the training and, like, if we're going to get you, like, up to par for, like, where you should be as a cavalier and, like, fool everyone into thinking, you know, that you are who you're supposed to be. But, yeah, then they immediately just say that he abdicated and actually we've got this one instead <laughs> and everyone's like, okay. But to be fair, I think part of the ruse is that they don't want to show that literally the only other young person in the ninth house who could even potentially be a calf was like an untrained for sure so someone not trained as a calf yeah exactly like if they were a rich house i think if ortis had abandoned his post there would have been a plethora like a, whole a wealth of, of other <laughs> options yeah not just yeah. like well here's the one other person here who isn't an old decaying skeleton i guess criteria alive <laughs> And uh, Gideon notices, so again, being kind of observant, um, that only six shuttles have docked. Um, I like the quote here. She'd never seen so many different people. Well, so many people not of the ninth, and it almost dizzied her. But not enough that she couldn't pick out that something was amiss. She is perceptive. She is <laughs> noticing things. She is counting shuttles. <laughs> Yeah. And so then teacher explains that there are some inconsistencies being checked with the house of third and the house of seventh, uh, which is why their two shuttles haven't arrived yet. Uh, we get some interesting little clues here. We get an explanation that the house of third will, of course, push the boundaries. Uh, we later find out this is because both Coronabath and Ianthi have come because they're twins and they want <laughs> to have an extra person there. And then teacher says the house of seventh, dot, dot, dot. Well, it's well known, <laughs> which is funny because obviously Gideon and Harrow have no idea what he's talking about. It's not well known to them, but he's referring to uh, Dulcinea and her illness, uh, mm -hmm. presumably, and how that's and then, being examined. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you said later on we meet them because uh, we instantly meet them. Like, well, <laughs> the yeah, paragraph. we meet them like two seconds. <laughs> the next then we meet the, we twins. Meet the twins. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I absolutely love the intro for the third house. Oh my God, it's so good. So three people come out of the shuttle. The first was a, was a rather sulky young man with an air of hair gel and filigree. <laughs> an ornate rapier at the belt of his buttoned coat the cavalier the other two were young women both blonde though the similarity ended there one girl was tall and statuesque with a star white grin and masses of bright gold curls the other girl seemed smaller insubstantial with a sheet of hair the anemic color of canned butter and an equally bloodless smirk it was as though the second girl were the starved shadow of the first or the first an illuminated reflection the boy just looked a bit of a dick <laughs> 
I love that. I love how Ayanti is described as so like insubstantial with like her pale hair and her pale like complexion and everything just Mm -hmm. kind of fading away. And it's funny because I thought of this before when you see all the like um, different cosplays and costumes Mm -hmm. that people get up to for like usually like Gideon and Harrow and so many like great redheads pulling it off. I've always been Mm -hmm. like, I would have to be Ayanti because I just have very pale (laughs) hair and face and everything. Although now my hair is pink, so that doesn't work. But I've always related to the way that she is described a little bit. I know. I love bloodless as a descriptor. It's so good. Uh, and from this quote, I, my interest was piqued because I was like, canned butter. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. I was like, is this a New Zealand thing? And I Googled it. And the first, well, one of the first results was cannedbutter.com. Red feather canned butter from New Zealand. Canned butter is perfect for emergency and disaster preparedness. Shelf stable, needs no refrigeration. <laughs> I feel like this and is what do you know? <laughs> It's now available in the U.S. for wholesale and retail purchase. Wow. I feel like this is such a great example of how differently you and I read that not only do you look at like <laughs> vocabulary, like when you encounter words, you don't know, you're like, I must understand what this word means. And I just kind of go context. I got it. Keep going. And the fact that you've researched can butter, whereas I just kind of went, sure. <laughs> So I said it was one of the first links. A lot of the first links were like, hey, like, is it safe to make your own canned butter at home? And people being like, no, you could die. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know. I, I feel like it. it's like a prepper thing. Like they make canned butter. Oh, okay. and they have little... Anyway, yeah, I guess people aren't very good at home canning. Yikes. Yeah, all right. You've heard it here first. Don't can your own butter. <laughs> Offering safety tips to the masses. And then I love this. Harold Herc says that uh, twins are an ill omen when she sees Corona Beth and Ayanti, which you're kind of like, okay, we get it. Like doom and gloom, everything. But then wouldn't you know, she's pretty right there. Oh my God. Oh, okay. And as an aside, because we've met the, fir- the third house. Um, last episode, we talked about Catholicism, communion, the concept of transubstantiation, um, you know, literally eating the flesh and blood of Christ, which you could argue is in a sense, cannibalism. Um, and so while researching for the discussion for this episode, I found this great quote from Tamsin in an interview with Nightmare Magazine, which is like a horror short story magazine. Uh, about a short a short story she wrote, which is about a zombie getting revenge for allied atrocities in Stuttgart after World War II. Stuttgart? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, here's the quote. <laughs> I love cannibalism. <laughs> Incredible opener. <laughs> Elka eating the Americans, so two characters, is incredibly physical and visceral, but it's innately spiritual too. As she says, she is taking him with her. Any afterlife she goes to, he's going too. Before she died, he imprinted himself on her in a way that she took as permanent, and she's clawed back that permanency to extend to even after the grave. So clearly the seed of an idea or a theme that was developed more for this series, and specifically for the flesh necromancers of the third house. Absolutely. There's also some, you know, after we meet the third house, we get some um, ominous foreshadowing about the lecturehood process from teacher. Uh, Speaking of... Uh, Iante and, and Lichterhood and cannibalism. <laughs> so there's a little discussion between the priests. Um, the household's backing, born at the exact, both the adept, and teacher says, only trouble at the end of the line and a trouble confined to them, i.e. one cab, <laughs> ostensibly two necromancers. <laughs> but of course, reading this for the first time, you have no idea. Yeah, just more ominous uh, quotes that everyone loves to give. <laughs> Um, so then we get to the occupants of the seventh shuttle. It opens, someone steps out and immediately faints and <laughs> runs to the rescue, which is sort of interesting to see this kind of impulse in her. Um, especially because we haven't really seen her around any other characters before now that she would have the impulse to rescue. If they yeah, it's true. Every she, character like, has been someone she hates or yeah, like, like I glamour. I bet that if Harrow decided to faint when she stepped out of the shuttle, Gideon would not be rushing to, you know, 
catch her swoon. Um, but yeah, no, it says Gideon never ran unless she had to. And Gideon ran now her legs moved as swiftly as her awful judgment, (laughs) Uh, which is funny because obviously it's the awful judgment in the sense that it sort of causes this really chaotic scene for a moment while everyone reacts to her doing this, but also the fact that she's running to Dilsonae and and catching uh, her and kind of that sparks the beginning of her interest there uh, could also be seen as the awful judgment on her part. I think that's what, what Tamsin was going for, like her her emerging crush on Dilsonae. <laughs> terrible, terrible. So she swoops Dulcinea up. Um, then the seventh cavalier, Protosalaus, puts his sword to her neck um, for, I guess, touching his necromancer. And I mean, you kind of have to laugh reading this as Kithraea because she's just putting on like a puppet show. <laughs> like she orders Proto stand down, he doesn't. She asks again in a more dramatic manner, and he does. Like she's just having the time <laughs> of her life. Kind of underscoring too that seventh house trait of like being, you know. Uh, overly romantic and uh, dramatic at all times. I'm gonna make an entrance by swooning so someone could come run and catch me and fall in love <laughs> with me. And of course, yeah, we get this delightful, like, wounded deer, baby doll description of Dulcinea um, as a slender young thing whose mouth was a brilliant red with blood. Her dress was a frivolous concoction of seafoam green frills. Her skin seemed transparent horribly transparent with the veins at her hands and the sides of her temples, a visible cluster of mauve branches and stems. Her eyes fluttered open. <laughs> they were huge and blue with velvety brown lashes. Velvety brown lashes. Oh, that is like straight out of a romance novel. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah. And so then, of course, the sword, uh, which Gideon's neck is replaced by a hand, which she immediately recognizes as Harrow. <laughs> she recognizes though, looking as a hand, which was pressing down as though its owner would quite like to punch her a simple bone into crumbs. Which, <laughs> obviously, who else would it be? But uh, I just love that, like, she can instantly ID it as Harrow. And also, Harrow's voice gets a great descriptor. And I mean, throughout the, vo- the book, like, Harrow's voice always gets a great description. But um, <laughs> Tamsin phrases it as, Harrow Hark's voice emerged as though it had been dredged up from the bottom of a charnel house. <laughs> so good. Your cavalier drew on my cavalier, Harrow says, and Gideon died gently of shock. So good. So good. I love died gently of shock, too. Like, I underlined, <laughs> underlined that on my read because it's oh good because she's obviously like, Harrow is standing up for me, like, question mark. Question mark. In her, <laughs> well, like, Oh my god. And Harrow saying, my Cavalier, I love it. it the, like, <laughs> uh, the speed with which Harrow instantly hates Dulcinea. <laughs> yeah, she leaves at the end with glacial disregard. And then I think the funniest thing about this entire scene, too, is, uh, you know, we were just talking about Seven House, sort of the theatrics and dramatics. And the oh, fact my God. That, that Kithra is the one sort of puppeteering all this. But she has this really amusing reaction to uh, realizing who it is that's come to her rescue. She says, oh, my God, you're Black Vestals. You've done oh it now, pro. <laughs> Swooning. You've done it now, pro. They could demand satisfaction and you'd end up a mausoleum centerpiece. Oh, God, I was rescued by a shadow cultist. Like, these are all just so good and dramatic (laughs) i phrased it as dulcinea has a fangirl moment over meeting the ninth (laughs) yeah absolutely and i think that like i mean it's funnier in retrospect for sure knowing more about who she is but also it's just again really setting up how the other houses are going to perceive them and the fact that that what we've first been introduced to in the books with the nine house is not necessarily the norm at all for the other houses Mm -hmm. like they all think they all have this really creepy reputation um (laughs) as being shadow cultists so i love that yeah no uh Dulcinea slash Kithra's whole reaction here is hilarious. Um, Gideon says, come on, you fainted. And she says, I do do that. (laughs) She admitted and gave another wicked chuckle of delight. This appeared to be the greatest thing that had ever happened to her. (laughs) 
then of course uh, Gideon gets her first look at Protosolaris, um, and she says, he didn't look healthy. He looked like a collection of lemons in a sack, etc. He was waxen looking in the sunlight, probably with sweat. <laughs> yeah, probably. Must this be. Brings, <laughs> this brings me back to what I was talking about before, where you get this hilarious combo with Gideon as the narrator because she's very observant, but she doesn't always draw the right conclusions from her observations, which really rewards rereading. Absolutely. I also just love it. He looked like a collection of lemons in a sack. Oh my like that's God. So like you can just instantly picture the exact sort of like bodybuilding, like Shh. muscle mass um, that someone that's might perfect. acquire that would lend itself to being described that way. And <laughs> it's very funny. Um, yeah. And then we get just some more, um, crush stuff <laughs> Gideon's happy because the lady of the seventh house was smiling um and then also um her babyish face made it difficult to give her a timestamp. she might have been 17 or 37 <laughs> hmm. keep going Gideon a little older <laughs> then Harrow uh you know leaves this whole situation with this very possessive remark where she says keep your sword off my cavalier in tones of the sepulcher <laughs> Oh, so good. Again, we get another My Cavalier from Harrow, which is ah! great. And yeah, Dulcinea um, introduces herself. Um, and I find this kind of interesting because at the end, Catherine claims to uh, Palamides that she never lied, but like she straight up introduces herself as Dulcinea Septimus, which is definitely not her name. <laughs> and she says, this is My Cavalier Primary, Protoslaus the Seventh. <laughs> I mean, those are lies. <laughs> her opening. I don't know, man. Tiny lies. And then, of course, she winks at uh, Gideon as she leaves. Gideon catches her eye. And rather than being mischievous or horrified, she looked as though giving offense to the House of Ninth might prove the highlight of her life. Gideon (laughs) swore that she was even favored with a coy wink. So, again, we kind of get this continued establishing of uh, flirtation or a crush uh, that Gideon is developing on Dulcinea. And also, again, the fact that she just seems to be having so much fun with the fact that she's caught their attention, which I love. Well, and I was also going to say just she's having fun in general. She's not really taking any of this seriously at all. It's just like all kind of amusing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like it's been they've been told that it's going to be this huge, big, important thing. And and no, not Gideon. I mean, I mean, Kisaraya. Oh, no, I know. But I'm saying like for Harrow and Gideon and the reader, (laughs) like you've been introduced. This is going to be this really big, important thing. And then one of the first people we meet is just like, you know, having the time of her life. Yeah, it's completely Uh, absurd. Um, And then uh, as they leave this whole situation, um, Gideon also catches Yante's eyes, her pale eyes like sniper sights, her mouth exquisitely chill. There was something in her stare that Gideon disliked on impact. On impact, that's so good. (laughs) And she held that gaze until the pale head was dropped. Mm. I just think all the intros in this chapter are fantastic. (laughs) She wins the first staring contest (laughs) to the And then we find out a little bit more about Dulcinea from Teacher. He says, a blood rough law runs through the ruling house of the seventh, sparing most who carry the gene, but fatal to a few, and reveals that she wasn't meant to live until 25, which is very sad. Very sad. Very sad. But he also, he says it in a weird way, like Tamsin describes his expression as one that was hard to fathom, something like melancholy and something like resignation. And like, he doesn't really answer Harrow directly when she asks if the Lady Septimus was diagnosed with the flaw. He just kind of gives this oblique answer about how Dulcinea Septimus specifically was not meant to live to 25. So I don't know, like, is he just being weirdly evasive? Am I reading too much into it? Or is he aware that Dulcinea is actually Cathrea and, like, kind of knows what's going on but can't say anything? I don't know. What do you think? I'm not sure. That's something that, like, I didn't consider that on my reread, the idea that he he was aware when he was saying that. Um I think it's, I'm going to have to like 
pay more attention to that as I keep yeah. reading. Yeah, I think I think so too as we get closer to the end because that's something I don't remember exactly in terms of what we find out and who knew exactly. And what teacher's restrictions are in terms of right. like what he can tell them. Yeah. So maybe this um, is him kind of dancing around it. But yeah, I mean, you hate to see it. You have a new crush and then find out that they <laughs> <laughs> might die. Any yeah. day now. Gideon ends this chapter by saying 25 years and Harrowhark was probably going to live forever. <laughs> so good well so unfair and then we move on to chapter eight we finally get inside Canaan house to the sort of reception area where they're gonna you know find out what they're here for and the description is great it again sort of underlines the the contrast and the shift to a new location a new part of the story it's a ninth house mausoleum of a room except that through the glorious wreck of the smeared and vaulted ceiling light streamed down in such quantities it made Gideon halfway blind again. (laughs) So, so much, you know, light as a motif here still. Yeah. And again, we get the sense of, again, it's compared to uh, a a corpse, something that, you know, used to be beautiful (laughs) and and has, has died over the years when it presumably has not been inhabited. Yeah. Um, It's being taken over by ungovernable nature. (laughs) Exactly. It says everything in that room was beautiful and all had gone to seed. It wasn't like back in the ninth where unbeautiful things were now old and ruined to boot. The ninth must have always been a corpse and corpses putrefied. The house (gasps) of the first had been abandoned and breathlessly waited to be used by someone other than time. It's just, such a good turn of phrase it and is. another contrast between the first house and the ninth house and then yeah the term abandoned sort of sets up for what we learn in Harrow about like why and when the lictors fled yeah and I think it lends this atmosphere um right away to the, to the setting that they found themselves in yes. of, like you know all the the history that used to be there the fact that this place used to be used it used to have life and and people it used to be this beautiful uh place and now has decayed over the years it it definitely gives it an air of mystery of what exactly happened and why no one's been there (laughs) um and it's just a great a great aesthetic for our heroes to explore no it's so fantastic i absolutely love it and i mean you can really tell like if you have read gormagast all the influence here like her really trying to build this gothic old house (laughs) Um, in this scene, we get another fu- kind of funny mention of Kithrea puppeting Protoslas, like she pats the chair, prompts him to sit, and it's only then that he sits down. And he also doesn't drink any of his tea, which Gideon notices, again, being very observant. Um, yeah, so the skeletons serve all the all the people tea. Um, and <laughs> the, the description here is so funny. As the other necromancers and cavaliers drank with varied enjoyment, Harrowhark held her cup as though it were a live slug. <laughs> um, and of course, we learn in Harrow the Ninth that... Harrow's idea of like an overwhelming flavor experience is a very slightly sweetened lemon water. Gideon knocks back uh, all her tea and it, with the sad note that um, she'd never drunk a drink hot in all her days. <laughs> oh my I God, know. Can I can't at all. I mean, you think of our friend who doesn't like hot drinks, <laughs> but this is involuntary on her part. <laughs> Jeez. So then Gideon's watching the priests. We had a bit more description of uh, the others. All three wore the same clothes, which gave them the look of white birds on rainbow leashes. But somehow teacher was the only one of the three who seemed real. This is, again, uh, awesome because it's like, yes, I mean, teacher is pretty much the only one who's real because he's got like multiple souls. And then, yes, like they are literally on rainbow leashes. Like the first house is the rainbow and they're on leashes in the sense that they're like puppeted dead people. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite good. Yeah, and I think, again, it's just adding to this aura of, like, everything seems a little bit off in certain ways. They've just arrived at this place that they don't know much about, we don't know much about as a reader, and you kind of get these little clues sprinkled through that, like, something is a little bit weird about everything. Exactly. 
And then in the midst of this awkward silence, no one is making any effort to get to know each other. One of the priests calls for a prayer. It's a prayer that Gideon doesn't recognize. This is Gideon's mm-hmm. never heard this one. There was only one prayer on the ninth with the most of the crowd rattled it off as though they'd been saying it from the cradle, but not all. She observes <laughs> that Protosolaus doesn't even mouth along to the prayer, which, mm. you know, you might think he's just so silent and stoic, but it was kind of a fun little clue to stumble on uh, when you're rereading it. So then we get another example here of, we were also talking about last episode with the Catholicism of it all, my new favorite word, (laughs) cannot pronounce, um, where after this prayer finishes, which is unfamiliar to Gideon, but clearly very familiar to all of the other houses that are there, Harold then begins the ninth prayer, Mm -hmm. um, which uh, as we discussed is representative of a different and some would say heretical religious tradition compared to the rest of the houses. Yeah, and okay, so they pray. Uh, the priests bring out a box of key rings for the cavaliers, although, of course, at this point, we don't know that they're key rings. And we get this hilarious line where <laughs> the chest was no wider than a book and no deeper than two books stacked on top of each other, estimated Gideon, who thought of all books as being basically the same size. Uh-huh. <laughs> They call forth all the calves to get their key rings. Gideon kind of clutches hers because she can sense that Harrow's just dying to take it. Um, and then teacher goes over why they've been called here. So the lictors weren't born immortal. Um, he says they were given eternal life, which is not at all the same thing. And they've been slowly dying. They all need to be replaced. I especially like his line, um, 16 of them came here a myriad ago, eight adepts and the eight who would later be known as the first cavaliers. And it was here that they ascended. Those eight necromancers were first after the Lord of Resurrection. <laughs> like obviously something about that math doesn't add up. Yeah, I definitely remember <laughs> on my first street kind of going through and being like, okay, there were 16 of them, eight of like what happened to the calves. And I think like it is something that you kind of dismiss as you're reading on like, okay, so like, you know, the necromancers become lictors. We don't really know what happens to the cavaliers, um, but definitely mm. there's a bit of an ominous <laughs> music playing in your mind as you read it on a reading. Yeah, because you could obviously just have the interpretation that like the calves stayed mortal and therefore all died. Like that mm-hmm. that's reasonable. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Teacher goes on to say that it's not a sure thing that they'll rise to the challenge of replacing these lictors. And he says, uh, in the vein of a motivational poster, if you do not find yourself a galaxy, it is not so bad to find yourself a star. (laughs) Literally like that, that poster that every classroom had that shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you land among the stars. <laughs> oh my god i love that um he mm-hmm. then says that he's going to speak candidly to them and says you may even die but i see no reason not to hope that i may behold eight new lictors by the end of this join together with their cavaliers heir to a joy and power that has sung through ten thousand years so Woo-hoo! first of all love the positivity he's like yeah like you know there's no reason why this wouldn't work out everything is going to be just fine but also i love that we've just we've just seen this sort of discrepancy in the math of you know what happens to the cavaliers or why are there eight and eight and equals eight <laughs> somehow and then literally here i know he says join together with their join cavaliers together, which oh i God. mean i did not flag on my first read as i literally didn't either <laughs> as you know, what does this mean how exactly are they joined how does eight <laughs> plus eight equal eight um and so that that's quite funny that that's right oh there as God. well he wraps up by saying their every need will be met. They'll have private quarters. Um, he says they're never going to be allowed to use any kind of communication network and that they are here until we send you home or until you succeed, which <laughs> really reminded me of the Russian man who was trapped on the Chinese boy band show. <laughs> I think I told you about that, right? <laughs> you did. Oh, my God. If the... Anybody listening hasn't heard this story. There was this Russian man, um, later known as Lelouch by fans of the show, who uh, initially you know, signed onto the show as like, I think an interpreter or something, because he spoke 
Chinese. Um, but he was asked by the producers to actually be on this boy band competition like reality show. And he signed the contract, <laughs> not realizing that it stipulated he would have to live in this isolated place with all the other contestants, like, and wouldn't be allowed to leave or he'd be fined. And <laughs> he, he just obviously put in no effort and like his performances were terrible, but the fans absolutely adored him and kept voting for him. He made it to the finals. And then I saw a really funny meme about that. That was like, this is literally like the only real world uh, example of like every Wattpad fanfic of like, oh no, I was sold into One Direction. <laughs> oh my God. Closest you can get. <laughs> contractually trapped into a uh, boy band television show where they won't let you leave oh my god well and if he won he would have had to be part of the boy band (laughs) he's like please every day I'm getting closer and closer to my fate (laughs) yeah incredible uh okay and then of course is the hilarious crowning moment of this chapter where teacher says this is what the first test asks of you and like Gideon tell, can tell that everyone's expecting there to be like a schedule set up for lectures and labs. Um, she's got some hilarious names for this syllabus, uh, skeleton anal- analysis and history of some blood and tomb studies and like lunchtime and finally double bones with Dr. Skelebone. <laughs> but then of course, all teacher says is, we ask that you never open a locked door unless you have permission. There's a complete silence. There's a nail that kind of pings onto the floor in a cartoonish manner. And teacher says, that's it. <laughs> And of course, Gideon sees lights dull in every eye that had gleamed for double bones with Dr. Scalabone. And someone does actually pipe up and is like, so what is the training then? How to attain lictorhood? And the teacher literally just says, well, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Welcome to Canaan House. So that's great. You've traveled all this way. You're going to be put to this, you know, big challenge and big test. And we will not tell, we can't tell you what it is whatsoever. Um, It's so good. But, and of course, like, it's a funny moment for the reader because the reader doesn't know, but Harrow gets it instantly. And like that night she starts cataloging doors, which we don't learn until later on. But I just thought that was so funny. Like the reader and well, Gideon and by proxy, the reader are completely baffled and like, don't know what's going on and sit around for three days, still having no idea what's going on. (laughs) And Harrow's instantly like, okay, plan plan of attack yeah then they yeah so they go down to their quarters they don't say anything to each other except when Gideon notices that it's dark out and says that the lights are broken and Harrow informs that it is nighttime <laughs> you <tool>. uh, <laughs> it's night you tool and uh Gideon experiences her first circadian rhythm the removal of light strangely made her feel very tired <laughs> I, I know couldn't be can't me, relate personally <laughs> So their wing is kind of low down below the ship docks. Um, Gideon ends up making her own bed nest because the only bed for the cab is like at the foot of the necromancer's bed. And she's like, no thanks. Um, And so from her bed nest, she looks at the window and she sees someone or something throwing all the shuttles into the sea. (laughs) And at the end of that, it says the scraping ceased, skeletal feet pattered away. So I'm curious if this is like, teacher and the skeletons and like what they've been programmed to do or if it's Kithrea sabotaging them yeah I don't know what did you land on I don't know I think that the mention of skeletal feet sort of implies some skeletal assistance to whoever is doing this but that doesn't clear it up though right because like teacher controls the skeleton yeah well I was just thinking I I don't know which of them it's supposed to be that it is amusing to me to imagine if it was Kithrea like Gideon looking outside and seeing like this girl that she just met and is (laughs) crushing on just like sabotaging their escape route (laughs) trapped here oh my god yeah no I don't know I I feel like I'm leading to the on the side of like it's supposed to be part of the trial but 
I don't know. Yeah. Like you're stuck here. You can't communicate with anyone. You also can't leave. I could, I think that's probably how I read it on the first go that it's just, but you know. it's, it's weird because like, obviously these shuttles are expensive. Um, and yeah, like you know, there must- night, <laughs> why wouldn't they just fly them back to wherever they came from? Like why don't right. there must the be a, a, a more uh, efficient way to get rid of them than to just like send them off instead of jumping them to the ocean. Okay. I'm leaning back towards Kithrea. It's gotta be Kithrea. I don't think the emperor Sabotage. would tell the skeletons. Okay. Once they get there, dump the expensive shuttles into the ocean. <laughs> no, I agree. I think it's more likely sabotage. So that's where we end chapter eight with the uh, mystery drama confusion. So since we are introduced to characters from the other houses for the first time in chapter seven and eight, we thought it'd be fun to play a game that looks a a bit at the naming conventions of the nine houses. So in the world of the Locked Tomb trilogy, all characters have a second name or what Tansen Ware refers to as an arithmonym or number name. Um, And it's referential to the number of the house that they belong to rather than their family. So Mm. these don't work like last names that we're used to where they're um, passed down from parent to child. Harrow, for example, is Harrowhark Nonagesimus, daughter of Pelamina Novenarius and Primehark Nonius Vianus. Really wrote yourself into a corner with that example. I know. (laughs) Terrible example. Uh, But as you can see, they all have different last names, but they're all uh, share a root in the number nine and word roots that correspond to the number nine. And I found in the glossary of the book, there's a whole section where Tansen talks about the naming conventions and says, your first name is given to you by your parents and may indicate a family connection. The first name often refers to your family in some way. For instance- The suffix Hark in Harrow's and her father's name, so her father's Priam Hark, mm-hmm. honors a previous pilgrim entrant into the tombkeeper line. And also I thought it was interesting, she notes that double barrel names like Jean-Marie and Coronabath are formed from heirloom name particles. So sort of the same way that you might give your child a double barrel last name if you wanted to right. incorporate both families. Now you would do that with first names instead in this world. And Tamsin also specifies that siblings don't generally share last names for this reason, because they're unique names that pay homage to their house rather than their family. So the game that we're going to play is a fun little linguistic game. Um, I have pulled together some words for numbers in different languages uh, <laughs> because Tamsin definitely pulled from a lot of different roots and languages and creating these house names, these arithmonyms. And I'm going to quiz <laughs> Bailey on whether she can guess what number these <laughs> words are. Yes. I'm very excited for this because that was one of the things that I kind of enjoyed about like, like reading Harrow, you get the dramatis personae with all the lictors and their calves. And from those names, you can deduce what house they're from. Or, well, I, I will say I actually found it pretty easy to deduce what house they're from because mostly Tamsin uses like Greek or Latin Uh, number roots Um, but I saw a lot of people on reddit like not understanding which house was supposed to be which like someone thought that the prefix tetra was not associated with the fourth house I was like of course it's the fourth house like (laughs) didn't you study platonic solids in in (laughs) primary school Uh, obviously not burned into your brain still Um, but anyway so uh, that was something that I really enjoyed about uh, Harrow so I'm ready hit me I have pulled together some numbers from different languages, some of which may have familiar roots and some of which may not. Uh, We're going to start with Danish because I thought that was fun. So our first one in Danish is, and again, I'm just going to give a like disclaimer apology for how much I may (laughs) butcher any of these pronunciations I did check, but like 
we're, we're going to see how it goes. So the first one is uh, fear, which is spelled F-I-R-E. What number do you think that is? Uh, probably four. Yeah. Sounds a lot like four. Sounds a lot like four. Looks like me. One for one. 100% correct. <laughs> okay. And now the next one is pronounced again, doing my best here. Ode, ode, and it's spelled. Was oh, it the O with the slash through it? No, there's no oh. accents or anything. It's just spelled O T T E. I'm pretty sure that's eight. You are correct again. Yeah. There we go. Nice, <laughs> easy Danish, some familiar roots. Uh, now we're going to jump into something a little bit harder in honor of the uh, month or so last year when I decided to try to learn Welsh on Duolingo. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> actually, it may have been this year. I have no concept of time. Yeah. Uh, Again, my pronunciation is not great. I didn't actually listen to a lot of these on Duolingo, but we're going to do my best. Um, what do you think Pedwar, P-E-D-W-A-R, what number do you think that is? Pedwar. Oh, it's tough because Welsh is like a Brythonic, like a Celtic language. Uh, don't speak any of those. Uh, I'm good with the Romance language. <laughs> it's not so good with Celtic languages. Um, I'm going to go with five. You are close. It's four. Ah, fuck. <laughs> and I don't four have this again. in my notes, but I do remember that five is, I think it's pump, like, or spelt like pump, P-U-M-P oh. in Welsh. So it does have Pedwar. some similar sounds there. I like that. And the next Welsh one that I'm going to give you is with, spelt W-Y-T-H. Oh my gosh. Um, seven? Eight. Oh again, my gosh. <laughs> we are within one number of. Oh, it's so hard. It's hard. I love it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to any of this, but <laughs> just going with it. So the next one that we're going to do is Hungarian. Um, as I was reading through these, I did vaguely remember my grandma trying to teach me how to count to 10 in Hungarian when <laughs> I was younger. Um, and I only remembered one of them, which is the one we're going to start with, which this is, is great. <laughs> Hungarian is, I think, like a language isolate or like it's closely related to Finnish and Estonian or something. So another language I know nothing about. <laughs> All right, so your first number in Hungarian is harem, which is H-A-R-O-M. Harem, like the way I'm being harmed by this quiz, (laughs) getting everything wrong. Uh, Yes, it's a Uralic language, by the way, I'm on Wikipedia. Okay, I'm going to say five. (laughs) It is the number three. Oh my God, (laughs) it's three. But I'm like, Bailey, you love linguistics. Let me give you a (laughs) thing where I just give you random numbers in random languages. (laughs) They're all so hard. So we started with like the easy data just to mm-hmm. let you feel good at the start before it got harder. Yeah. Um, okay. So then our next Hungarian number is ut, which is O-T, and the O has the two little dots on it. Okay, that's gotta be eight, right? It's not. It's <gasps> five. I oh my god. <laughs> I'm full. I was fully fooled and tricked. Wow. That being oh, said, good. if there was a character that showed up with like a last name that started with OT, I would probably think it was eight yeah. also. So that was a trick <laughs> that's awesome I yeah I was looking through I was looking through some like romance like it was like oh he was like Italian or something and I'm like well like too easy French and Spanish like yeah we're gonna know all these okay and then for the last language this is one where um I'm just going with the Wikipedia sort of like written out version I guess of how you would say it and we're gonna do Sanskrit because you brought it up when we were talking about this uh episode segment and because um Gideon's surname Nav uh is very similar to the Sanskrit word for nine which is Nava which I thought was interesting I love it well wait I do want to say why I was talking about it so the only house name that doesn't really fit in the dramatis personae of Harrow the Ninth is um Nigella Shodash 
who I think we we later can surmise is from, well, we can surmise that she's from the sixth house because of her necromancer's last name. But yeah, um, Tamsin went with Shodash, which is actually Sanskrit for 16 because six is shat. <laughs> or at least like in some version of some Sanskrit adjacent language, I think it's not exactly that. But anyway, that made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I think it must be that because I was, I didn't notice that in the Sanskrit table that I was looking at, but I remember that you'd said a funny note about that. So you're not going to get the number six or nine for these. So there's a little, <laughs> we've narrowed it down for you now. Um, what do Sorry, you think me. the Sanskrit number? And again, I don't know how to pronounce this. Panka, P-A-N-C-A as per Wikipedia's uh, written out translation. I think that's probably five. It is five. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Sanskrit is also descended from Indo-European. So like it, it's not as unrelated as Hungarian is to English. <laughs> it's like, thank you for not giving me another fucking isolated language. <laughs> okay. And then this one I think will be easier for you as well. What do you think? Sapta, S-A-P-T-A. A seven. It is. Yeah. See, there we go. I gave you some challenges <laughs> and I brought it around in the end. So you could go out it. with a victory. I love it. So, yeah, um, I think that's very cool. I think that's fantastic. that what we should do um, next time or at some point is come up with our own arithmetics for <gasps> some houses that we started ourselves into. Ooh, I love that. I think that would be fun. Uh, <laughs> but we have not prepared that for now. So That makes me think of the short story, um, The Mysterious Study of Dr. Sachs. I, I don't know. Did you read it? Like, I, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the whole uh, through-line joke in that piece is that Sax, of course, it makes sense as a sex name, but like, do a teenager, it's the most hilarious name cool. possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I don't know. I love a fantasy series that has like name-building conventions. Yes. Like, even just doing this segment now is giving me like big flashbacks to like warrior cat's energy. Oh like, my God. like, what is an acceptable warrior cat's name and what is not like... <laughs> That's oh how God. you know you've made it. The morphological rules for warrior cat's name. <laughs> they are very specific. Very strict. So the discussion this week is um, on the sort of... <laughs> millennial anachronistic tone and like memes that uh play a big role in this series um you know they the books all have this fairly unusual combination of high-minded uh baroque science fantasy and very irreverent modern humor um and I found some really great quotes from Tamsin in interviews. <laughs> the first one was, I want to release people from having to take their universe entirely seriously if they don't want to. I take my story very seriously, but I'm anachronistic a lot. My narration includes useless memes and jokes for the reader that nobody in my universe would get. <laughs> I have driven my copy editors wild. How can you justify Gideon saying that's bananas when she's never eaten a banana? <laughs> and my editor is now in one long exchange of hostages with me where I can keep some references and have to lose <laughs> we appreciate all the work that you were doing Tamsin to fight for those references because <laughs> I've laughed at so many of them well and I do love it because like there you can sort of justify how and maybe we'll talk about this more a bit more later you can sort of justify how these memes and references might be kind of preserved in time um but I like that she's just saying that yeah like some of them are just anachronisms <laughs> I love um Fuck, I'm not even going to say it correctly now, but the one, the like, the really glaring one in Hera with the the nun, pe is it nun pizza left pee? 
it's none. Yeah, none pizza with lefty. Yeah, none pizza with lefty. <laughs> like I love the idea of just like if we don't take that. Well, I mean, it's sort of like an in-text joke on the part of like how she structures that sentence. But like I love the idea of like a meme like that, like lasting through ten thousand years. <laughs> like, well, it's like the and I, I have a, a funny quote about this later, but it's kind of like how there's like funny graffiti from Pompeii that's been like preserved yeah. for multiple millennia, like. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't, there are some really classic examples and I can't bring any of them to mind, but it's stupid stuff along the lines of like, I pissed here. (laughs) Pompeians are just like us. (laughs) Oh my God. Another quote that Tansen has given in an interview with Forbes. She says, one of the things I was really aiming for with the book was an irreverent tone to balance out the horror aspect and some of the heavier, more Gormagastian styling. Thanks for asking me to read this quote. With that lovely mouthful. Um, she says, I wanted a book that was absolutely saturated with horrible things, but leavened with a more flippant narrative style, um, which I think definitely comes across. I think that the tone of the narrative with that that flippant style of, of voice that she's talking about, both in some of the sort of funny anachronistic things that you encounter and just Gideon's tone of voice in general <laughs> yeah. in this book are definitely like one of the first things that when I was reading it for the first time jumped out at me to sort of set this apart from other, you know, kind of high absolutely sci-fi um, books about whether it's fantasy or, or space well, or whatever. And it's different from your classic like male fantasy author who wants sort of like a, a male quipping anti-hero. Like it's got a completely different energy. It's like a very specific like woman online yeah yeah exactly it's not the like oh I'm gonna try to make this more relatable with like a very like dude bro kind of humor it's badass (laughs) jokes like it is it is that sort of fun thing when you're reading an author and you can tell that like this author has been online in ways very similar to how (laughs) I have been online for my entire life yeah exactly like reading Patricia Lockwood Um, and Tamsin goes on to say, I generally expend more effort keeping things totally solemn. And I love this because it kind of, like, one of the reasons I really loved reading these books was that it, it really does come through clearly in the text that the author had a really great time writing it. Like, it's just fun all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think not only the jokes and also just kind of the way is that so many random different things are twisted into the narratives of this book. Like, I think you can tell when authors have really specific interests that bleed through and, and it's kind of fun to see how they patch them together. Yeah. So then Tamsin goes on to say, I uh, describe it as a balancing act. She says, I do think that the more screwball jokes and set pieces make the traditional and more solemn stuff hit harder. I've always loved comedy and horror as bedfellows. It's I m- cut out her extended peanut butter and chocolate metaphor. here. <laughs> <laughs> um, she says it seemed very intuitive to know when to put the jokes in, though there were a couple of times when I did totally blow up in a serious moment <laughs> with a Gideon joke rather than underscore it. I that agree. Was in the minority, generally the two balance each other out. Um, she also says that she did end up cutting a lot of jokes for Toe. And like originally she had a crass comment from Gideon when they find uh, a body, presumably the fifth house bodies. Uh, I think that was probably a good idea. Yeah, because it's, you know, pretty sad moment. <laughs> yeah. And then I have some notes here of like my, the specific bits that most clearly jumped out at me as being like, wow, that's a very online thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, and this is actually the only one from Gideon in here because I couldn't... Uh, bring to mind any of the others but um harrow's line in the training montage where she says while we were developing common sense she studied the blade <laughs> which is fantastic and yeah we talked about um uh, <laughs> nut and pizza with left beef and of course the emperor at the end of harrow says i'm shut in here to prevent the nine houses becoming nun houses with left grief 
Oh my god. He's been waiting to reference. Like, he's been <laughs> referencing that for 10,000 years and he still thinks it's funny. But, but yes. I, I think the thing with that joke though is like I first encountered that joke. I'd actually saw it in a tweet before I'd started reading Harold and I oh. of someone just kind of con- I don't think like, I didn't have any context for it at the time so it didn't really spoil anything but they were just like oh my god is this a then pizza with left beef <laughs> joke and I was kind of like oh my god and I think I remember bringing that up to you or other friends. Yeah, I hadn't like, noticed it it. it. it didn't jump out at you. And I think no, it I completely sort of a, went over it. It's a slightly less obvious one. But then once you see that it's there, you're kind of like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So the first time I read it, I didn't notice it at all. But of course, the first time I was reading Harrow, when I got to that part, my whole brain was just so saturated and confused. I don't think I was taking much in at all. Um, but yeah, the second time I read it, I was like, oh, my fucking God. <laughs> Um, and again, yeah. you could just imagine Tanzan having a lot of fun writing that and sneaking <laughs> that in and like of all the little like Easter eggs. I wonder if your readers are going to get like, oh, my God, it's pretty satisfying. Um, and then, yeah, the other one that I guess I thought was more grown worthy than funny was uh, Wake's whole name, which I'm not going to write out here, but John makes oh, a God, funny yeah. joke about it where he says, Mercy on the first, Augustine the first, meet commander, wake me up inside. Sincerest apologies if I got that wrong. <laughs> Yeah, love to also think that Eminem lyrics have persisted for 10,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> like just everything you'd want to continue from our society. Yeah. Well, and John is a big source of these too, which again, I think kind of makes sense within the context of the story. Like he literally has been frozen in time for 10,000 years. So he makes a dad joke. <laughs> Hi, yeah, not fucking like, dad. I'm dad. <laughs> which is just like, yeah, like I there are so many different things that I say because, you know, I've absorbed them from being online and being in, in bubbles of friends and other people who say the same things and the same phrases over and over and over again and it would definitely be funny to compare even over the course of like a few years how our vocabulary has shifted but yeah the idea that like for 10,000 years like he's been sort of like still keeping all this in his brain and now is saying it to like an audience of people that don't have those same context clues (laughs) like that makes me want to lose my mind a little bit like imagining just going around being like you love to see it and everyone and your whole it's like if your whole friend group were people who you had to explain memes to oh my yeah imagine if you were like the one (laughs) online person in a group of like very (laughs) offline friends like even when you see the tweets of you know like the online bf offline gf i'm like i can't imagine i don't know being in close proximity to someone for that much of my daily life and them not being online enough to get what I was talking about oh my god there's also speaking of Patricia Lockwood there's a jail for mother reference which is <laughs> cute and, and then that. classic the Superman s which comes up in Harrow where Harrow's hallucinating and Ortis uh tells her what she's looking at uh, when you know to her it's like uh, <laughs> wakes like ghostly rants Ortis says It's a drawing of the letter S. The letter in question is constructed from six short marks stacked vertically three by three. There are two triangles on the top and bottom, which, along with some diagonal strokes, form a calligraphic S. You're like reading this very like serious passage and you're like, wait a fucking second. (laughs) I I know. drawing that on every notebook in third grade and thinking it was the coolest thing I'd ever learned how to do. I mean, of course, this would persist for 10,000 years. It somehow like jumped from young person to young person in like a, a cross-continental mind meld. Like I started drawing this. I don't remember where I learned it or where I saw it. <laughs> it's just sprung from me fully formed. find it next in the Pompeii room. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But yeah, my overall thoughts, I think like overall, yes, I love the tone of this books. It's so, of these books. It's so unique. It's so funny. But sometimes the jokes do kind of kill the mood. Like she doesn't quite hit that balance, especially I think the Eminem lyrics really got me. I was like, eh, this isn't very funny more of a groan than like a laugh. Um, 
But the all the dad others- joke got more of a groan than a laugh for me. But it was sort of, <laughs> yeah. like it was more of like an exasperated kind of like, oh yeah. my god, are we of course this, this would sort happen. Of thing? But like I, I wouldn't say I didn't enjoy it, but I was sort of like there was a groan yeah. that happened. Or, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean overall more laughter than groaning. Um, and yeah, like in universe, you can kind of justify it with like since the world is ours and it's been in some sense, like the whole culture has been necromantically frozen in time for 10,000 years with a lot of 10,000 year olds still living. Like, okay, maybe some memes and references would stick around. It's like new goal now, do a tweet so good that not only does it go viral, but it then (laughs) stays in people's brains when the world is necromantically frozen for the next 10,000 years. And a dog be twins. (laughs) (laughs) I need people to be quoting that uh, to future generations that will have no idea what they're talking about. So then um, in the very, from the same interview that we mentioned first, which is with the fantasyin.com uh, 2019 interview with Tamsin, uh, she was also asked, your book is both murderous and eldritch horrors and an irreverent narrator who doesn't always take things seriously. How do you strike a balance between the two, um, which is sort of what we've been talking about here. So Tansen said, I looked at who did it first and decided it was Joseph Heller. Heller juxtaposes the horrors of World War II with John Yossarian, who does not take things seriously while at the same time taking things more seriously than anyone in the book. His DNA fell through my inexpert hands, definitely (laughs) ended up in Gideon. I just think it's a source of endless comedy and endless horror. And I think comedy makes horror sharper and horror makes comedy funnier. Um, And I mean, I definitely felt the mix of the two because, you know, we've just talked about all these sort of memes and irreverent language that definitely (laughs) laughs throughout the books because they're just so out of place from what you'd expect. But there were also a lot of like really horrifying, both scary moments and and visuals that were just quite unpleasant to read. Well, and it's it's interesting how like Tamsin's uh, sources are so diverse, like sources of inspiration, like Catch-22 is like, <laughs> it's like a, a satirical book about World War II, like not exactly the kind of thing you would think would inspire something like this. But it, it is like, you know, thinking about that comparison, it, it does have a very similar tone. Mm-hmm. So then just one last thing for this interview, Tansen also says a lot of the cruel humor in the book actually comes from the text rather than from Gideon herself. Gideon's a Kiwi heroine when it comes down to it. She tries to downplay terrible situations by being offhand. <laughs> That's not necessarily unique to people from New Zealand, but I I agree that it's like, yeah, Gideon's not making mean quips. (laughs) Like, it's not that kind of humor. And then we have one last interview here with Tamsin I thought was really great. It's from the LA Review of Books. Um, And the interviewer asks, a lot of reactions to Gideon have nodded to how contemporary it is, full of memes with a particularly millennial sensibility. (laughs) How did you approach its temporal aesthetic? And Tamsin says, I've seen people point at Gideon as an example of really 2017-28 humor, that one year captured in Amber. I'd say that Gideon owes a lot more to internet culture starting from 1995 than it does to that particular post-2010 Tumblr culture. A lot of the memes in Gideon are actually old. They're dated as hell. (laughs) Temporality in books is all artificial. When you're writing fantasy and science fiction, you're reaching into the period that you're writing from. Any attempt to hide that is fake. The language is going to change so strongly. The mores and cultural ideas are going to change so wildly. And I really love this. I think it's such a cool perspective. (laughs) So she says, when he taught me in 2010, um, Samuel Delany spoke really interestingly about how you can't ever write a true alien novel because it would be just too weird. We wouldn't be able to access it. You have to find that sweet spot where people believe it's an alien culture, but it isn't so removed that we can't get into it. Jeff Vandermeer does that really well with his Annihilation novels. It's weird, but the kind of weird that we can still look into and see ourselves in. 
Um, and I really didn't like the Annihilation novel, but I totally agree with this point. Like you can't, it, like if you actually wrote about this culture 10,000 years in the future, like they wouldn't be speaking English, right? Like it would be a completely altered language. Um, like, you yeah. know, it'd be so bizarre, we couldn't even comprehend it. And I, I mean, I think it's the sort of thing that you get into anytime you're talking about, you know, creating a completely different and separate world, be it for, you know, fantasy or, you know, like a historical fantasy or something like that too. I know I've, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the author. I think it's Samantha Shannon has talked about this a bit in some of her fantasy world building um, because she, and I'm, I'm going to say that I haven't actually read any of her books. I've seen her talk the at a bunch of, of different the, events. But yeah, she wrote The Priory of the Orange Tree. The Priory of the Orange Tree in the that. It was season series. Three and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> Heard great things, but I've also, I've seen her talk at several events and she's someone who pays a lot of um, attention and detail to linguistics in her story with, you know, namings for places, for characters, et cetera. And she's talked a lot about how a lot of everyday words that we use um, have some sort of roots to historical or religious or kind of cultural signifiers that we're familiar with, that if you were actually building an entirely new world, like, you know, the really obvious one coming to mind now is you wouldn't, you know, talk about someone being like christened with a name or like any right. sort of any sort of word that has some, you know, reference to like Christ that we might not even, you know, think of or the days of the week, for example, like there are just so many different things that are so rooted in our own history. And yet it's so familiar to us now that if you were to remove all of it and replace it with something else, like it's a really careful balance you have to strike between creating something that feels new, but also will be accessible realistically to your readers and so I think this is kind of in the same vein as what uh Tamsin's talking about here with her lesson from uh Delaney well that just reminded me of something you're talking about like not being able to use certain words because uh it reminds me there was a book that came out quite a while ago now called The Wake where the author because he said it in 1066 literally went through his English writing and decided to use only like old Anglo-Saxon words. Um, oh like it was kind of a linguistic experiment. Like he obviously wasn't actually using old English. It wasn't linguistically accurate, but it was intended to evoke this feeling. Anyway, I tried to read it. It was really quite bad. Oh, no. uh, but it, anyway, it's a cool just... project for you. <laughs> yeah. But like, like it, it's, it kind of underscores the point about how if you go too hard, it just doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily going to be an enjoyable or valuable or rewarding reading experience. It might just yeah. kind of be a really weird experiment. <laughs> exactly. And then not to say that you can't, you know, do these fun experiments for yourself. But if you're trying to sell a book, it's maybe not the best way to connect with <laughs> an audience of readers. Well, I don't know. That gimmick, I think, sold a lot of copies of The Wake. But anyway, <laughs> um, the last thing Tamsin says in this interview, um, the interviewer says, uh, it's not incomprehensible. It both is and isn't the world we're used to. And Tamsin says, incomprehensible is the word. With Gideon, I'm pushing out the idea that there's a line of comprehension and a fourth wall you can't break. I did deliberately want to play around with language and with jokes and the kind of words and phrases and even structures that we use that point to internet humor. This is all we're doing anyway. It's just that we hide it so we can stop people feeling like they're brought out of the text. But where one person is pulled out of the text, another wouldn't even notice it, like me with nun houses with left green. <laughs> Other people think, oh, wow, this is really cool and fresh. <laughs> it's true. I really want to know like what, you know, someone being someone who is really offline would think <laughs> reading this book, like other things that jumped out at them where they're just like, wow, that's a neat joke or like, wow, like that's sort of funny or does it just go over their head? Like, I want to, I want to hear those experiences. I'm thinking about all the Pompeii graffiti again, because I found this one really good Reddit exchange, which we will link in the episode description um, <laughs> about, you know, how people liked the meme. So one user says, I just viewed all the memes and references as relics of pre-resurrection society. 
And another person says, yes, the relics. When I first read through Harrow, I thought Commander Wake's name was really deeply sad. A mixed up radio recording, the actual last intact fragment of a 10,000 year old civilization. Something she didn't entirely understand the context and meaning of that ended up being hilarious to people from the culture she was trying to solemnly give tribute to. I love this perspective. It's, it is like in a way really quite sad. Like we're laughing yeah. at the fact that it's Eminem and it's bringing us out of the text, but in universe, it's like really quite tragic. Um, so this person goes on to say, that's one of the things you always have to wonder about archaeological culture re reconstruction when you don't have a lot of material to go by. Is this carving something of huge cultural importance or is it a millennia old copper merchant's bad Yelp review? <laughs> I think that's a reference to the first uh, like cuneiform tablet that we can read. That's like right. somebody giving a bad review of the copper merchant. <laughs> Is it a sacred symbol or is it the Neolithic equivalent of the cool S? I think one of the things Muir is doing, putting memes into her hyper-referential book, is saying that like, actually artifacts like the cool S or graffiti are just as vital parts of a culture as Shakespeare or epic poetry. Um, I love that. And I'll just read the next comment because I want to get back to Pompeii graffiti because I found an article that listed some Pompeii graffiti. <laughs> So this other person says, did out of viewing them as relics of pre-resurrection. Um, it makes complete sense that post-resurrection folks would memorialize and cling to random literary references and pop culture references and dumb memes from the previous era. It's almost like the dying of the solar system was the eruption at Pompeii, and our entire era has been preserved in its ash, memes and all. Eminem lyrics are preserved graffiti, and none pizza left beef may as well be a statue of Caligula. <laughs> Okay, um, Pompeii graffiti. Sorry, <laughs> did you have something you wanted to say? No, 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 no. Go ahead. I want to hear the Pompeii graffiti. All right. If anyone does not believe in Venus, they should gaze at my girlfriend. <laughs> On April 19th, I made bread. Relatable. <laughs> Actually not. But. Uh, you know, relatable to other people during the panini. <laughs> Theophilus, don't perform oral sex on girls against the city wall like a dog. <laughs> A small problem gets larger if you ignore it. Why? <laughs> um, oh, Walls, you have held up so much tedious graffiti. I am amazed you have not already collapsed in ruin. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, then one says, I screwed a lot of girls here. Okay, got it. <laughs> Celidus, the Thracian gladiator, is the delight of all the girls. <laughs> Epaphra, you are bald. <laughs> okay, let's stop. I love that though. And like, yeah, like imagine if that was like our lasting impression of, you know, like ancient Roman society, it's like these very significant texts. Oh my God. Alphidius was here. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Is it time for bone of the week? It's time for bone <laughs> of the week. And now the one bone that I was able to find uh, that seemed good and specific for uh, this week's segment, I also quoted uh, earlier. So there's a uh -oh. little, fun little shout out there. I um, was trying not to pay attention to the bones because I knew it was your week for bone of the week. <laughs> I was like, like, you, oh. <laughs> you might get this one, um, oh, okay. but I'm going to, so again, for bone of the week, I want you to tell me <laughs> where you think this bone is located in your body. And then afterwards, I'll get you to rate it. Um, <laughs> first sexy bone of the body one out of ten <laughs> one to ten ranking one um, to ten ranking got it so this week's bone of the week is the occipital bone oh yes i know exactly where this is it, i think it's also pronounced occipital um occipital. and i know this i know this because um i spent a lot of time in undergrad learning about the skulls of animals <laughs> <laughs> that was what human skulls bailey yeah so it's in the skull uh but i actually don't remember exactly where in the skull uh 
got okay. you there. I don't need to be that precise, do I? <laughs> give, 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 me like a, give me like a guess. You know, your skull's got okay. a lot uh, of uh, surface area. I think it's in the back. <laughs> it is. So the occipital bone is the trapezoid-shaped bone at the lower back of the cranium. Uh, I'm quoting this from Google, I believe. Um, it houses the back part of the brain and is one of seven bones that come together to form the skull. Mm. Didn't know there were seven bones in our skull. Now I do. I think it's a pretty sexy bone. You know, like, yeah. Uh, you know, you could grab someone there. I'm going to give it a seven out of 10. <laughs> seven out of 10. Yeah. Lovely. All right. Yeah, big fan. Can't wait to compare it to all the other bones. The cashew shaped bone from last week, the scaphoid. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. That was a horrible bone. Much better this week. Please pick a sexier bone for me next week. That's my request. I'm on it. <laughs> Chapters nine to 11 must deliver sexy bones. <laughs> Well, thank you for learning new bones, uh, listening to us talk about memes and <laughs> puzzle our way through different languages this week. You can find us at One Flash One Pod on Twitter, TikTok, and Tumblr, or send us an email if you'd like at oneflashonepod at gmail.com. Uh, <laughs> let us know if you have any questions, uh, discussion topics you want to hear about, any conspiracy theories that you want to weigh in on. All right, we'll see you next week on One Flesh, One End. <laughs>